Okay, if you would stay on this slide for just a minute. Good morning, everybody. It is so good to be here with you, and I'm thrilled that we're getting to start into a brand new passage of Scripture together. This is going to be different than anything that I have done as your preacher yet, or that the ministry team has done since the time that I started preaching about a year and a quarter ago. Uh, We are going to preach through the book of Ephesians, one week at a time for 12 weeks. Let me hear you celebrate. Come on, cheer a little bit for the Word of God. Woo! Right? Because I know, see, we need that, because some of you are thinking, 12 weeks. In one book. 12 weeks. And some of you are thinking, yes! Right? This is what we need to get deep into Scripture. So, There's a story about a church, and I don't know if this needs to be us, but this church decided they were getting far too tired of the church hearing the stand for a scripture reading and hearing this sound. They had noticed it. You know, every week they would be like, let's stand for a scripture reading, and the whole church would say together, yeah. And so they instilled a new practice. They decided that together, when it was time for the scripture reading, they were all going to burst out in applause on their feet, cheering the word of God. So, you know, just practice it with me. We won't do this forever, but just right now, you ready? Just pretend, right? So we're going to read today from Ephesians 1 through, 1 through 14. You know, yay! Like that. Well, they forgot to tell the guest speaker. He gets up on stage and he says, today we'll have a reading from the word of God. And the whole church erupted in celebration. And he thought, man, I haven't even started yet. This is great. (laughs) Now, that's the kind of excitement that we would love to feel about the word of God every time. And I know that's not always what you come in with. I don't want you to fake it. Do you hear hear this, church? I don't want you to ever feel like you have to come to church and fake it. That would be a sermon series all of its own, and we can't do it today, but we want you to come just as as God finds you this morning. If you're not excited about the Word of God, you're not sure you trust it, come on anyways. I mean, come on, just come on, be here. If you're excited and you want to burst to your feet and erupt in praise every time Scripture is read, then come on. This is the place to be. Amen, church? And so we don't want you to fake it, but what we do want to do is instill in our body an appreciation for the top authority that takes place in every one of our worship services. You see, the sermon that you're about to get is maybe second or third on the list of authoritative things that happen in God's service. The top authority every Sunday morning is the scripture that is God-breathed. Now, can I get an amen to that church? Amen. This is scripture. Listen, all scriptures God breathed. It is, and you know what that means? That means inspired. That means God's spirit has given us this word. It is God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And here is the purpose of scripture, so that you, the servant of God, may be fully equipped for every good work. Scripture's purpose in the worship of the church is to equip you for all of the works that God has in plan for you. And so every time that we have a reading of Scripture, this is a moment for God's Spirit to be breathing into your soul. And the last 
testimony that you want our church to make. I'm not just saying that I want our church to make. I'm not just saying our elders want the church to make. I'm saying that the last testimony that you want our church to make, the church of Jesus Christ right here, God's holy people, is that somebody, your son or grandson, daughter or granddaughter, or the guest that you invited to church would come into church would see the church stand for the reading of Scripture and then would hear the holy utterance, because if we make Scripture boring, why would people ever want to love our Lord Jesus Christ? Can I, come on, can I get an amen? If we make Jesus boring, why would they want to come through those doors again? So you don't have to fake it. You don't have to pretend that you're coming in with the holy fervor of the Lord this morning. But when we stand for Scripture, as we will for the next 12 weeks, when we have a reading from Ephesians before the preaching to put it in its right place, we're going to at least do what we can to smile, to look at each other and, and recognize the Lord's presence in us in that moment, and to think about the people of God and the people he's calling who need to know how much joy we take in this word. Amen, church. Amen. And so now, if you would, go to the next slide. We want to welcome the Button family. Button family, are you here this morning? All right, right here. Let's all welcome them. We are so grateful that you guys are here. Um, You can read all about the Button family right here in today's bulletin. There's a little article about them, but the best way to get to know them would be to meet them personally. You'll see in the bulletin there's also uh, two other new memberships. I think their slides are in the second service program, but please read in the bulletin about each of our new members, and we're so thankful for you guys. We're glad that you are here. Now today as we begin in Ephesians... We're going to start this 12-week series, and we're going to call it In One Life. And you won't understand all of the implications of the title In One Life, maybe until we've worked through the series for a while, but the book of Ephesians captures the vision of God for his people as individuals, like you and you and you but also for his people as the corporate church, all of us together. And God's big vision and his hope for the world is that we would know what our identity is, that as Christians we would know who we are in. And just say it with me right now once, church. We'll preach from it in a minute, but we are in Jesus. Can you say that with me? We are in Jesus. Okay, one more time. We are in Jesus. Jesus. Okay, can I get an amen? Maybe from this section right here? Yeah, okay, good. This is, I mean, when, if you go to our Beginnings in Christ class, the core of that class is the blessings that are in Jesus Christ. Amen, right? And so we are in Jesus. For the first month of May, we're going to talk about our identity from Ephesians 1 and 2, in. When we get into the month of June, we're going to talk about one, Because God has called people from various places all over creation, Jew and Gentile are the original two categories, but now from every category, in heaven and on earth and throughout all time, God has called people together to be in Jesus as one body. And so just say the word with me, one, one, say in, say one, in one 
Oh, good, you guys filling in the blank. Yeah, okay, good, that's good. Uh, say the whole thing with me then. In one life, in one life. Good, you guys are brilliant and smart and capable. This is good. So let's talk about dreams for just a moment, and then we'll pray. From Scott McKnight's book, One Life, Scott writes this, you dream big dreams because that's how God speaks to you about what God wants to accomplish in your life. Let's hear it again because this is so good. You dream big dreams because that's how God speaks to you about what God wants to accomplish in your life. Now let's unpack it for a moment. I want you to think about how big is your vision? How big is your dream for what is coming in your life? What has God put inside of you? Do you remember that Jesus once said, what comes out of the mouth gets its start in the heart? Now that's the message version from Matthew 15. But what comes out of the mouth gets its start in the heart. That's true of cursing and condemnation. That's true of blessing and big dreams. What comes out of our mouth gets its start in the heart. Well, what comes out of your mouth? What do you talk about? What are you dreaming about in all the in-between thoughts of life? Why do you think that we dream? Again, in the book One Life, Scott McKnight talks about possibility overload. Possibility overload is when we imagine so many massive changes happening in the world and in your life that you cannot hold it all in. This is the moment when imagination erupts. When we experience this kind of reverie, these big ideas, the jumping up and down ideas, the running out to tell someone ideas, the not caring what they think ideas, the have to go for a run to burn off all of this energy ideas, when we experience this, we know that we've stepped into passion. And passion is one of the ways God speaks to us about his plans for us. How did he make you? About what he wants to do through us about his big, beautiful dreams to unite the whole world, and listen again to the words, in the one life that he wants to do through us that's worth living. His dream of all life being summed up under the leadership of King Jesus is the dream that is behind all other dreams that we dream, whether we know it or not. It's the dream of beauty that all artists in their painting and their music aspire to. God's dream is the dream of justice for all who are oppressed and live in unfair systems. God's dream of one life in Christ is the dream of lasting value for all whose lives are waning to death or sickness or old age. It's the dream of enduring kindness for all who have been wronged. And God's dream is the dream of one life in Jesus Christ. And his very good, very kind, very just, and very beautiful world, what we call the kingdom of God. And this is the pool from which all the other heart-wrenchingly good dreams drink. This dream in which all the other dreams dream when they're dreaming their in-between thoughts. And this is the dream that captured the imagination of Paul 
when he wrote his little letter to the Ephesians, actually to all the churches in Asia, and it was carried to the church in Ephesus to be shared with the other churches. Paul's jumping up and down dream was God's vision for all people finding there, and hear the words, one life in Christ. Do you hear that? In Paul's dream, no one would ever need to waste their one life in anything fruitless, spoiling, or passing away. In this dream of God's, no one would need to live their living alone, but could find one life in God's kingdom people, in his church. In the one life of Jesus Christ, all the other life arrows point to the true north. Their purpose and their calling. If Paul's accused of being too wordy, too long-winded, too passionate, too elaborate, or too dreamy in this letter to the Ephesians, let it be known that all of his energies were poured out into this passion so that you could find the one life in which you were called, in which you'll find the greatest fulfillment and your true purpose. It'll be found in Jesus Christ, in one community body, his church, and in the small in-between thoughts and actions of real everyday life, at home, at work, and around town. This is God's big glorious dream to unite all people under the leadership of Jesus Christ in one life. Let's pray over this for a moment. Our Father in heaven, as we're about to look deeply into the scripture that Greg read, and for just a few minutes, unpack this concentrated dream. We pray, first of all, for your presence to be known here. We know that you are always here with us, God, but please help us to recognize your presence. Help us to see you in the authority of your word, your scripture that you gave us for the building of the church, for the equipping of your people, to give us real tools for living and for faith. And God, please help us to hear you from our mind and from our hearts as we think about your beautiful dream for your people in one life under Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, we pray all of this. We trust the Holy Spirit to intercede for our groans in words that cannot be expressed. And it's in his name that we pray, and all who agree say, Amen. You see, God's dream to unite all creation in one life is the theme of Ephesians 3 through 14, chapter 1, 3 through 14. As we look through it for a few minutes, I want us to go into thinking mode, but I don't want you to leave heart mode. Can you guys keep touch with both worlds for a minute? Remember, as we dissect a few points of teaching from the passage that God's heart is being poured out in this passage. Here's the best way I know to say it to you. There are some things in life that need to be transported in a smaller package. There are some things that need to be written in fewer words even though they retain their full potency. Have you ever in your home used one of these. This is a can of orange juice concentrate. My mom used to buy juice in this form so she could store it in the freezer 
and always have juice available for her growing boys that could drink the fridge dry in a day. And so my mother would keep these cans of concentrate, and if you've never used one, a brief explanation, one can of concentrate and about three cans or so of water will take this useless juice pulp frozen mush that would be so strong and bitter it would probably not nourish you, it would make you lose your lunch, and with a couple cans of water it turns into this much hydrating, life-giving, nourishing, and to my mother very important, refrigerator filling, orange juice. But how do we take a text like Ephesians, where Paul, over the course of his life and ministry, has taken so much that he knows that's nourishing about God and written it down into a condensed statement you see, this is the first thing you need to know about Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. In Paul's Greek, those 11 verses are one sentence. It's not necessarily good Greek. It's not even necessarily beautiful Greek. And it's very uncommon for the way that letter writing was done in the ancient world, that Paul erupts in this statement about God and God's big dream for the world. And it's like Paul had to take all of this and try to cram it down into this. And you know what you do when you make juice concentrate out of juice. You've got to take out some of the life-giving water. But if you want to be nourished by it, the water has to go back in, which means the word of God has to be read with the spirit in which it was written. With the Holy Spirit, God inspired of Scripture, meaning, which means we've got to get in touch for a minute with all of these nutrients that Paul has packed in so tightly, because I know this about you and about me. If you read Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, on your own, on the couch, with no preparation, it tastes and seems like eating this stuff. It's so heavenly, it's so big. It's so masterful that you just go, how can this help me on Monday? And we've got to turn it back into the life-giving juice. So let's do this one point at a time. We've got six of these. We don't have a ton of time, so we're going to move quickly through them. The first one is God's identity. The scripture shows us who God is. God is called Father in verse one or verse 3 of chapter 1. And I want you to notice, even if you have to go home and read it again to mark your Bibles, or you can fill this in on the back of your bulletin, but notice the pattern in chapter 1, as Paul never uses this word Trinity, but what he does is he shows you God as Father, God as Son, and God as Holy Spirit. And to make it clear in this long-winded Greek sentence, he put markers in the chapter for us to show us how the first paragraph is to the praise of God the Father's glorious grace. And after he talks about Jesus, the one whom he loves, in verse 12, he again says, to the praise of Jesus' glory. 
And so this is a little way of marking off subsections in a long-winded sentence. Measurements, if you will. One cup of water for the first paragraph. One cup of water to unpack the second and another for the third. After the Holy Spirit is mentioned in verse 13, we get the third place where it says, to the praise of his glory. And if you want to know a little bit more about how Paul sees God's identity in Ephesians as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, just look for a minute at verse 17, which isn't on the screen, but it's in your Bibles. 117 says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, did you hear it? We've already had Jesus and the Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom. And there they are, again, just like in the way that we baptize, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And again, if you want to look through Ephesians, you can find this in chapter 4, verses 3 to 6. There's one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and in all. You can find it in chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, a passage that the churches of Christ have typically preached as just being about how to sing and not use instruments, but the passage is actually about the Spirit of God, and I'll read it to you. It says, sing songs from the Spirit, sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus. And in the introduction, in the concentrated section, you get an introduction to God's identity that doesn't become a fullness of its juice and its nourishment until you've read the rest of the letter and you find those other places. You see, he puts themes in the beginning of the first chapter that become life-giving truth in the rest of the book. The second point is this, God's cosmic vision. And I don't use the word cosmic to be cute or to sound bigger than it is. It's really, truly a cosmic vision. By cosmic, we mean this. We mean, if you would go back one for me, uh, in verse 3 of chapter 1, blessed us in the heavenly realms is actually cosmic language. It means that God, in some spiritual way, has blessed us in other dimensions than the one we live in. How could that even be? You live right here in the body, in the earthly realm. But the truth about Jesus Christ is that his blessings for you aren't starting on this side of history. They're starting and the spiritual end of history. Look at verse 4. He chose us before creation. This is cosmic time. Before he even made anything, he chose us. Verse 10, he wants to unify heaven and earth. He wants to bring those together. This is cosmic language. In Jewish writing, when it says that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that's a Jewish idiom for saying God created all that is, alpha and omega, beginning to end, heavens and earth, everything and all creation was made by him and for him. This is cosmic language. He says when the times reach their fullness, and again, you can think about a vessel being full. Once you've poured it to the full, it's ready to drink. And God views history as a vessel that's being filled with markers and times and places. And when history was full, he sent Jesus Christ. And there'll come another time of fullness at the end when it's time for God to redeem all things. And so he says the Holy Spirit until the end of time is a deposit or a seal for us guaranteeing our inheritance. See, he's looking towards the cosmic end of time until our redemption. And so God says from high to low, from near to far, from beginning to end,
end. My dream for you encapsulates all that ever was and all that ever will be, eternity to eternity. God also reveals to us, point three, our identity. I've briefly mentioned this once And we simply can't dedicate all the time this morning to the series that this could be in its own right. But maybe one day we will. That you are found to be in Jesus Christ. In him, in the one he loves, and etc. And look at all of these verses just from our concentrate today where at least 12 times the phrase in Christ or its equivalent appears, which means there is something about God's blessings that only apply to those who have entered into Jesus Christ. This is strange language for us. I wouldn't expect you to walk in from the street and just say, oh yeah, like being in somebody else makes a lot of sense to me because physically, what does this even mean? You could say a couple things about me right now. All right, Josh, Josh is in his clothes. Praise the Lord, amen? Josh is in the church building. Josh is in the universe. There's three levels for you that we can easily see in our realm that Josh is in. But listen to some of the metaphors that are used in Scripture to talk about what's happening in the spiritual side of reality. You are now clothed in Christ. You see it? He's building us into his holy house, his temple. That one comes right out of Ephesians. And he's going to unite all things in heaven and on earth, which means anything that we can picture ourselves inside of, he's used as an image to tell us what it means to know Jesus Christ and to be in his salvation, to be in, hear this, his representation that he's the one who has done it. Look at what he says about our destiny. Point four. Our destiny is that he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. These words might bother you a little. Look at the next one. In love, he predestined us for adoption. Now, you don't have to answer out loud, but I'm just dying to know how many of you have wrestled through your life with the speech in the New Testament, the text about election, predestination, and choosing. I bet there's quite a few people in the room today who still wonder, what does this mean? Does this mean that God stripped us of free will? Does this mean if God chose some for heaven that he chose others for hell? Because that's what's preached in some churches. Does this mean that God's a tyrant who just, you know, eeny, meeny, miny, looks on you with favor? No. Does this mean that God sorted out his people for salvation or condemnation? Look at the next one. In him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Doesn't that sound like it's saying God steers every vehicle? God makes every turn. Doesn't it sound like that? Well, what happens when we take our language about God and we put it in a jar this big? We have to choose few words to explain large concepts. 
And all throughout Jewish history, when the people of God talk about Israel being chosen, it's exactly that that God has chosen, the people of Israel, the people of God. God made corporate elections in the world where he said, I will choose Abraham so that through him will come my people. And now God has chosen Jesus Christ. Look at verse 4 again. He chose us in him. The ultimate representation of God's choosing is Jesus Christ. Now, wouldn't you like to be in him so you get credit for his election? Let's go into it just a little further because today we can't unpack it enough to answer all of your questions. It's for another series, but look at verse 11. In him, we were also chosen. We, look at the yellow, we, the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Now who, see these are the questions you must ask when reading about predestination and election. Who is chosen? Who is the we? And for what are they chosen? And to what extent are they chosen? Because Paul's able to say in him, we were chosen. And then in 13, and you were included. In Christ, when you heard the truth and the gospel, when you believed, when you were marked with the Holy Spirit, also to the praise of his glory. The major problem that the early church deals with in Romans, in Galatians, in Ephesians, in Hebrews, and in most of the rest of the New Testament is who are the people of God? The people who come to God through Judaism and circumcision or the people who come to God through faith in Jesus Christ? And Paul is going to say, yes, so long as we all end up in faith in Jesus Christ. We were chosen as the Jewish people, the people of God with the oracles, the commandments, the prophets, and all these teachers, and you also were included. You see, predestination was never in the first century world an idea of who does God pick individually for heaven and for hell. It was God elects the group here, Israel. Wouldn't you like to be in it? God picks Jesus Christ. Wouldn't you like to be in it? Who is chosen? And then also, for what are they chosen? Because in this passage, as you unpack it, you'll see they were chosen to be holy and blameless. They're chosen for a purpose. Israel also was chosen to be a light to the Gentiles. It doesn't say in Scripture that God chooses some people out of the pack and just says, for you, I've determined to choose you for heaven and you for hell. No, it says all of those I've chosen corporately, your purpose is to be a light to the world. That's what I've chosen you for. God chooses people for purpose. And to what extent are they chosen? They're chosen to the extent that they accept God's purpose for their life. There's a passage about the Jewish leaders that's not in my notes today that it, that it says they rejected God's purpose for their life. Why would you not choose Jesus and his dream for you? Finally, our security we have to do this fast. Our security in God's mysterious plan. You see, our security rests in God's big dream. We're secure because it's his love song, his plan, his juice concentrate. Believers are sealed with the Holy Spirit, which is a guarantee, listen to the words, on God's part. Your performance is not your ticket into God's will. His performance and your allegiance is. Do not reject 
God's purpose for your life. Just say yes to him. It's not a work. It's not a performance. It's just giving allegiance to the king of the universe. Don't you think as king he might want you to bow the knee and just say, I'll take the gracious gift that you are offering to me. And God's plan is summed up in this. This is the book in concentrate form. He wants to bring all things together between us and you, Jews and Gentiles. We'll get to it in the rest of the letter, but what does it mean for today? Who does God want to reconcile us to? Who are the people in the world that God wants us to seek the ones he wants us to love, the ones with which he wishes desperately that we would align and unify ourselves. And I want you to think, church, just for a minute right now as we pray, as we sing, as we offer an invitation, and as we wrap things up. Because in just a moment, we'll do that. When we sing our closing song and we stand, if you want to pray with our shepherds, you can come down here. A few of our shepherds will be in the back to look for people who want to pray. They would love to pray with you through this. But do you hear God's dream? Don't worry about all of the systematic theology in chapter 1. Will you enjoy the nourishment of it? Unpack it slowly, savor each word, drink the juice down. Is this not strange language? I mean, who talks this way? Who writes like this? I'll love you before there was time. I'll love you till after there's time. I'll look for you in the heavens and I'll look for you in the earth. I'll search for you everywhere in all places. You will always be mine. I love you just the way you look tonight. Who talks this way, right? There's something in the way she moves. Do you remember it? Well, there's something in the way she moves, looks my way or calls my name. It seems to leave this troubled world behind. Was he, is James Taylor saying he left the earth? He got transported to a spiritual realm? He's trying to contain an idea that cannot easily be contained. What about the words in Unchained Melody? Lonely rivers flow to the sea, to the sea, to the open arms of the sea. Lonely rivers sigh, wait for me, wait for me. Whoa, my love, right? Where does this stuff come from? Now, I gotta leave a couple for Todd in two weeks. I know he wants to sing to you. So we'll talk about can't help falling in love and crazy in love. Todd, challenge, crazy in love, two weeks from now. Okay. You guys don't know, that's Beyonce. All right, so how about the great, one of the greatest of all times? You guys know this and I know this, but listen to the words. It's got creation in it, it's got time in it, it's got all of these things. And if we were to read it like scripture, you would say it was nonsense. Near, far, wherever you are, I believe that the heart does go on. What? Once more, you open the door and you're here in my heart and my heart will go on and on. You see, until we understand it's love, it makes no sense at all. And we see all of a sudden God's love for us in this dream and that Paul couldn't contain it. He stuffed it into a jar for our sake. He poured it out into a vessel that wasn't worthy for our sake. And we have to unpack it and try to understand it. And now he does it again. We weren't worthy for him, but he pours his spirit into you. He pours his life. You are his letter. You're his song. 
You're his dream. Won't you step into it while we sing and pray together right now?